0: I wanted to welcome everyone here today, and those here in person and online, thank you for joining us. Today, in Matt's absence, we have Kyle Strickland. And uh, Kyle is from First Colony Church, serves as a senior associate minister there, holds a degree in history and theology, and was an adjunct professor of history for almost 20 years. Um, Kyle and his wife Erin, did I say that right? Have four daughters. Oh. Were part two, and and though they are not originally from Texas, they got here as fast as they could. There you go. And so, Kyle, thank you for coming. Hey, how are you this morning? You doing good? Well, look, I, I am a guest speaker. My name is Kyle. I'm not Matt Soper, and I want to thank you for the invitation. But I just have to say that the worship this morning has been so enriching. Uh, Ashton has done a fantastic job. Uh, to hear your voices. It's just been incredibly moving to me, uh, sharing communion together. Uh, Just a very, very rich, rich service today. Praise the Lord for that. And thank you for uh, your kindness and your gratitude uh, for letting me uh, be here. I'm so thankful uh, for the invitation from Matt. He and I have become friends over the past few weeks. And uh, I'm just delighted, absolutely uh, delighted to be here. You need to know that he speaks very highly of you, of this church. Uh, I know that you've appreciated his teaching and his leadership. So to share this space with him, even for just these Few moments is uh, it's an absolute blessing. He told me to tell you a little bit about me. I'll, I'll try to do that. I'm on the senior staff of the First Colony Church of Christ in Sugar Land, Texas. I am the senior associate minister there. My responsibilities range from leading worship to preaching, to some administration. Uh, My wife, Erin, and I have four daughters from 22 years old to 12 years old. One of my daughters, Elena, is here today with me, and I'm so glad that uh, we've taken this road trip together. And um, as you've already heard and maybe read, we're not originally from Texas, but we got here as fast as we could, and so thankful to be here. I've worked in a variety of churches in a variety of roles for almost 30 years, I've served on a board of directors that strategically targeted the formation, spiritual formation of men, and I've uh, been an adjunct professor uh, of history in a public university. But more than any of those things, I just want you to know that I love, I love teaching the gospel. I absolutely love it, and I'm so grateful to be here uh, today. This message, it's called And alien righteousness. And I'm going to tell you why and in just a moment, but I want to start by reading this statement about God from Romans chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Romans chapter 4 for a minute. And then a few moments we're going to be in Philippians chapter 3. So we're going to start in Romans chapter 4, and we're going to wind up in Philippians chapter 3. Let me read this to you from Romans chapter 4, beginning in verse 16. That is why Paul wrote it depends on. Faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. Verse 17, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations, in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life, to the dead, and calls into existence the things that do not exist. Now, we dropped right in on an extended passage about Abraham's faith. You probably caught that. But what I want to do is I want to tell you why we picked this. We I picked this passage specifically to draw our attention to verse 17, and this statement about God, that God calls things into existence that do not exist that he calls things into existence that do not exist there is a theological term for this you've probably heard this it's called ex nihilo ex nihilo it's a latin phrase that means out of nothing ex nihilo in other words god does not use a set of ingredients when he creates he just creates and he creates out of nothing. So let's talk about nothing for a few minutes. Now, you might be surprised to learn that we really can't understand, theoretically, we can't really understand nothing. We can't really understand it. Now, we define nothing or nothingness as the absence of something. Let me show you. Let me, let me give you a couple examples, right? The refrigerator is empty because it has nothing inside of it. Or we can't find our keys, but we last saw them on the kitchen table, but when we look, we find nothing there, right? Or the famous sitcom Seinfeld, the two main characters, Jerry and George in season four, write a television show about nothing. And for them, nothing was the absence of plot. Now, I think that's our general view of nothing. But for a moment, as we kind of zero in on this act of creation, I I want to enlighten you on what I think is a various, a very serious subject about nothing. So, pardon my foray into science for a minute, we're going to talk about this. Every bit of matter, every bit of matter in all creation, you know this, is a collection of atoms. And an atom is the smallest unit of matter. So, to scientists and chemists and physicists and the like, nothing doesn't really exist because everything is made up of something. Except maybe, maybe for the space between atoms. I have a picture I want to show you. Check out this image. This is the clearest image of atoms ever captured, ever. It's using a zoom of 100 million times. Now these atoms, these particular atoms, are in a crystal. This picture was taken in 2021. Now the atoms in the image are orange and the space between the atoms is black. And to atomic scientists, that black space is the clearest idea we have about nothing. Because nothing exists there. There's no, there are no atoms there. There's, there's no matter, except that's when it gets a little tricky for us, because we're a smart group of people, and you're probably thinking, well, could something exist in the space between the atoms? By the way, that space has a name. It's called intermolecular space, because as atoms form molecules, the space between the atoms in a molecular pattern, still functions to comprise the molecule. So, and it's a little bit of a head-scratcher, does nothing exist if it's a part of something? That's a little bit laughable, right? And I I hope I'm impressing you with my Google search skills. I hope that's happening this morning. I I think I sound a lot more clever than I really am. But you see the problem, right? You see the problem, I think, at the end of all this. Because you might be tempted to agree that the space between the atoms is nothing because there's no matter there. But if you think that, then the famous 4th century Greek philosopher Aristotle might disagree with you. Because he argued that space, which is our idea of nothing, like an empty refrigerator, an undecorated table, the space between atoms, Aristotle argued that that's really a receptacle for matter. It's a place where you put stuff or where stuff can go. So really, what we think is nothing, it's really something. Which I think makes Paul's statement in Romans chapter 4 even that much more profound. God creates from nothing. Nothing. That's a concept we really can't understand even at the 100 million zoom level of a molecule. We still find something. Creation, rocks and trees, planets, stars, jellyfish, reindeer, people. Creation has no template. It has no mold. It has no ingredients. There was nothing, and then there was something because of God, because of God. Now, I'm, in, I'm intentionally drawing our attention to this power of creation, really, as a side note, because it makes the case for God so compelling, and I think even, even irresistible. There is no unilateral way to prove how creation came to be other than God calling things into existence that do not exist. And I want you to hear me here. Since only God possesses creation power, He's the only one that possesses transformational power. The only one. He has proprietary information here. The one who formed you can reform you. He can transform you. And only, only God holds the ingredients to, to your life, to your existence, to your formation. And God, the one who calls things into existence that did not previously exist has specified how to transform me and how to transform you. It's something that Paul called righteousness. And that word is the word he used to describe the purpose of Jesus. Righteousness. Righteousness is the act of making things right. Right. And implying that whatever God does is right. Actually, scripture attests to this in numerous ways. Let me give you a couple. The first is from Genesis chapter 18, verse 25. In a description of God, the writer says, Will not the judge of all the earth do right? That's in the Old Testament. Here's the New Testament, 2 Timothy chapter 4 from the writings of Paul, henceforth he wrote, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. God is a righteous judge. So that means that God's action from calling things into existence that did not previously exist, to the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus. All of those things, everything that God does is right. If God does it, if He creates it, if He makes it, oversees it, authorizes it, it can't be wrong. Because God doesn't do wrong. His actions are righteous. He, he is righteousness incarnate. And listen, it's not a righteousness that exists here in our world. It doesn't. Righteousness is not an ingredient native to our world. It doesn't exist here. It's a proprietary ingredient that only God has. Righteousness, oh you got to listen to this, righteousness is not something we create on our own. It comes only through the advent of Jesus. That's it. So with that in mind, let's go to Philippians chapter 3, and let's read the words of Paul about righteousness. This is Philippians chapter 3. We're going to begin in verse 8. And listen, before we read it, we kind of need to remember that Paul wrote these words from jail. We're going to talk about that in just a minute. Verse 8, indeed, Paul wrote, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Verse 10, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's zero in on verse 9. Let's read this again. In order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul's language so specific here. It's not the righteousness of God. It's the righteousness from God. From God. It's a righteousness given through Jesus. It's a righteousness that doesn't exist here. It's from God. God calls righteousness into existence where it doesn't exist. It's a righteousness that the great reformer, Martin Luther, called alien in a sermon that he preached on Palm Sunday in 1519. I want you to listen to these words. This is the sermon by Martin Luther delivered a little over 500 years ago. Therefore... Luther wrote, this alien righteousness instilled in us without our works by grace alone, while the Father, to be sure, inwardly draws us to Christ, this alien righteousness is set opposite original sin, likewise alien, which we acquire without our works by birth alone and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. Luther continues, Christ daily drives out the old Adam more and more in accordance with the extent to which faith and knowledge of Christ grow. For alien righteousness is not instilled all at once, but it begins, it makes progress and is finally perfected at the end through death. So for the remainder of our time, we're going to talk about this alien righteousness that God calls into existence in our world through Jesus. It's a righteousness we need, but we can't create on our own. Now included in this alien righteousness are four succinct qualities that radically reshape us for the good. This righteousness is the ingredient that transforms us. And the first two qualities are what this righteousness does to us, and the last two qualities are what this righteousness does through us, and they're worth seeing. So let's talk about the first two. The righteousness from God does two things to us, and here's the first. The first thing that it does is that it disregards self-righteousness. It disregards self-righteousness. Let's read again from chapter 3 of Philippians, verse 9. And be found in him, Paul wrote, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul, right here in verse 9, identifies and diagnoses the virus that still plagues us. It's the virus of self-righteousness, of having a righteousness of our own, of having a righteousness created with tangible and created ingredients of our own moral capabilities. And self-righteousness, like a virus, it has various strains. I've got three of them. You probably recognize them, but there are more. Here's the three we're going to talk about briefly. The religious strain, the political strain, and the financial strain. First, the religious strain. This this strain of self-righteousness, it elevates our opinion of our own piety. It tempts us to think that we are inherently good because we're good. We're good people. Because our life is good. Because our church is good. Our relationships are solid, and we think that because of this, we found favor in the eyes of God because we've been so well insulated. That's one strain. Here's the political strain. This strain of self-righteousness elevates our opinion of our politics. It tempts us to think that we are inherently good because our version of government and those for whom we voted could make our country better, could save this country. Maybe, maybe even America would find its mythical return to God if people would only listen to us, if they would just listen to us. All the while, we forget that, according to Revelation 21, nations only return to God when Jesus returns to us. Here's the third strain. This is the financial strain of this virus. This strain pits our investments and our career prowess at the forefront, and it tempts us to think that we must be inherently good because we've been able to amass some sort of wealth or nice living. Our pedigree is good. We've been lucky, so to speak, to be in the right place at the right time, and we've capitalized on these positionings, those are all strains of the same virus of self-righteousness. But this alien righteousness, this righteousness from God through the work of Jesus, it kills those strains. It kills them. We have no righteousness of our own. It doesn't exist. Alien righteousness disregards our idea of self-righteousness. It overrides it. it. It kills it. Only God is righteous, and only His righteousness is this vaccine that we need to kill these strains. And look, you know this, we can do nothing. We can do nothing to earn the Lord's favor. If that was true, there'd be no need for Jesus. The second thing the righteousness from God does to us is this it actually values our self-worth it values this it elevates it elevates how we've been created oh this is great it relaxes in us the need to prove ourselves you and i we're created in the image of god and listen to me that's more than enough the righteousness from god is the ingredient made to fit you. Let's look again in verse 9 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul wrote, "For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him." You know what he's saying here? Paul's saying, "What else do I have to prove? What else? What else is left for Paul to prove here?" I mean, his pedigree, previously mentioned in this chapter, all of his achievements, they did nothing to prevent his incarceration. Not one thing. Nothing of value in him, of all that he had achieved, could forego where he wrote this letter. Nothing of value was found in him by what he's accomplished. And he realized that sitting in his jail cell. He gained Christ in spite of losing all that he had ever gained. Because Christ is the vehicle of this alien righteousness. Jesus is God's proprietary ingredient to restore to us what's been lost. I want you to listen to how... New Testament scholar and commentator Daniel Miglior puts it. This is a direct quote from his book over Philippians and Philemon. Daniel Miglior writes, the dignity of countless human beings is often under attack because of their race, ethnicity, gender, personal history, or social position." Against such assaults is not only the biblical declaration that we are all created in the image of God, but also the Pauline doctrine of the righteousness from God. Assurance of the inalienable truth of our human worth and dignity comes not from any value society may grant to us, Or from the value we may assign ourselves, but from the forgiving love and astonishing mercy of God in Christ. Or said another way by songwriter Charlotte Elliott, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, and that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. Just as I am and waiting not to rid my soul of one dark blot, to thee I come, whose blood can cleanse each spot. O Lamb of God, I come. And just as I am, thou wilt receive, wilt welcome, pardon, cleanse, relieve, Because thy promise, I believe. Lamb of God, I come. This alien righteousness values us because we are lost image bearers. God restores to us the title with which we are born. You matter. Because you were created, And God through Jesus makes this oh so clear. Those are the two things that this alien righteousness does to us, but it also does two things through us. Here's the first it forms a new community, brand new. Now, we're going to back up a few verses in Philippians chapter 3. We didn't read this earlier. But a few verses back in verse 3, I want you to listen to this statement that Paul wrote. Philippians chapter 3, verse 3. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Now I want you to notice that little pronoun, we. What a big word. That little pronoun, was written by a Jewish man in jail to a non-Jewish audience. This is a community of people brought together, disparate people, people of different backgrounds by Jesus, the righteousness from God. Paul witnessed a brand new social reality created by God. I want you to remember Paul's own personal story. He had performed rightly as a Jewish man. He was the pinnacle of Jewish men, but his self-righteousness was based on a system of exclusivity. Not everyone was welcomed, but he realized that the change that was wrought in him by Jesus, this same change that was wrought in the Philippians, formed something brand new in his world that had never existed that's what he wrote again in verse 9. We're going to hammer this one to death and be found in him. He said, I was found in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ. This righteousness from God that changes people, changes behaviors from the inside. It forms a community of people who do not look like everyone else. It's a brand new community. It's a brand new family, and it's one that wasn't even believed possible until Jesus. That's the first thing. The second thing that this alien righteousness does through us is that it forms in us a new mission, a new mission. This new life, this new community, it's actually born into contention. You know this. Witness Paul himself in jail writing this letter. But our mission to introduce this righteousness to unbelievers, it's the ultimate power move in humility. It is the way of Jesus in the world. And we are without option to consider any other way, even if we are opposed. But it's not the way of violence. It's not the way of arguments. It's the way of reconciliation. As image bearers, restored image bearers, we know that we have received a gift that we can't keep to ourselves. We can't. But I don't want you to see this on the macro view. I don't want you to see the big picture. I want you to see the micro view first. And I want you to watch how this righteousness from God through you affects those in your immediate circle. For those of us that are married, doesn't this righteousness need a chance to grow in our marriage? Isn't it right to let this righteousness flow through you and to your spouse, to your children, to your parents? What about your co-workers, your colleagues, your neighbors? We know we don't deserve this. And knowing that no one really deserves this righteousness Creates a community of people forgiven and ready to offer the same. And by default, we become people on mission. We can't help it. We can't help it. This alien righteousness, it's not something that exists here. God creates it through Jesus and he lets it move in us and change us let that be so today let's pray together father we come to you in the name of jesus celebrating forgiveness freedom celebrating mission celebrating community all these things that you formed through us we're grateful for this partnership And we're thankful that you trust us enough to give us the grace and mercy of Jesus. Thank you for this righteousness, Father. Help us to appreciate that in even greater measure today. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.